welcome so much to the first ever live taping of Big Time Dicks. We are the show that looks at laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, managing editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, senior reporter at Jezebel. <laughs> so we've been, do- <laughs> we've been doing this show every week since inauguration, and we look at small weenies and big dicks, and we felt like it's our six-month anniversary. Donald Trump re- deserves a six-month review. We're the ones to give it to him. Um, so this is why we're doing the show, and we have some great panelists. Yeah, so tonight we have Democracy Now's Amy Goodman. <laughs> Comedian Aparna Nancherla. <laughs> All right, guys, fans. And immigration activist Erica Andiola. Okay, so I'm sure all of you are subscribers and you listen to every single one of our shows, so I don't have to say this, but every week we start off the episode with our Week in Weenies, where we look at like the latest congressman to rip a head off a chicken or the latest Trump administration official to plagiarize their essay about why women don't deserve the vote. We're not Um, even making that up. Like those aren't even No, these are real 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 examples. I don't (laughs) write jokes. So for this show, we're going to kind of go over the Hall of Fame of weenies um, of the past six months of the Trump administration. And to do that, we need the help of what Rolling Stone calls one of the 50 funniest people of right now, Aparna Nantrella. Hi, guys. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Are you like a political junkie? I wouldn't call myself a junkie. I would say I use politics recreationally. <laughs> Great. That sounds very healthy, actually. That healthy. <laughs> Everything in moderation. But so, like, instead of to wind down, I use it to get really stressed out. <laughs> less, less healthy. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into our Hall of Famers. So our first weenie is Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. The president's new at this. He's new to government. And so he probably wasn't steeped in the long-running protocols that established the relationships between DOJ, FBI, and White Houses. He's just new to this. It's just what a great excuse for the president of the United States. He, he talks about Donald Trump like he is a kindergartner who skipped, like, 10 grades and is now starting like junior, like his junior year and like didn't study for the SATs. And it's like, give and him doesn't credit. Know give him like it's a like, little bit of credit. He's like a baby doing an adult's job. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he has presidential ambitions? That's a terrifying question. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like he would say no, but he means yes. Right, right, yeah. That, that he's that kind of person. <laughs> I, yeah. Our next one is Jared Kushner. Before I came to Washington, many warned me that the bureaucracy would resist any change that we tried to implement. So far, I have found exactly the opposite. So Jared Kushner is the White House Innovations Director, which is a title that I'm sure he invented for himself. (laughs) Like when someone's like, give yourself a title. He's like, I want to do innovation. Um, but this like past couple of weeks, we heard his voice for the first time, and I was charmed. I wasn't charmed, but I was delighted. 
It's weird to be the head of innovations when your face represents like years of history and oppression. And in Britain. (laughs) Of the Jews. I'm Jewish. So I can make Jewish jokes. (laughs) Okay. Let's move on. Our next weenie is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I don't believe I ever did. I don't recall any such meeting. I don't recall any such conversation. I'm, I'm not sure I understood your question. Maybe, maybe I better listen well, again. Well, the national, you were part of I don't recall it, Senator. I'm not sure. I, do, I have racked my brain, and I do not believe so. I don't recall any. Repeat that now. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. And I'm not able to uh, <laughs> be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. <laughs> So I have a theory as to why Jeff Sessions suddenly can't remember anything. Say the theory. It's, it's like a little bit of a conspiracy theory. So, but uh, Infowars is kind of conspiracies are real now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Alex that, Jones says they are. <laughs> I think that the ghost of Jeff of Jefferson Davis is, is has inhabited his body and is speaking for him. That's yeah. as solid a theory as Thank any. Thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if we're ranking theories, that's not the bottom. (laughs) Next up is disgraced press secretary Sean Spicer. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. I love Sean Spicer so much. Why is everything always going wrong for him? <laughs> Look how wide his, his suit is. His suit doesn't like fit. <laughs> he didn't get breakfast. Everything's bad in his, his life. His skin is orange, but it's clearly the top of his skin, not the like the meat, the meat of the skin. Right, 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 right. <laughs> he's, you know like, the meat. he's the guy that Alanis Morissette was singing about in Ironic. Like, oh. everything. <laughs> Although that does imply that he, like, has agency and is, like, doing things by choice. I'm giving him way too much credit by saying that. (laughs) I I was recently, uh, my parents live outside D.C., and I was visiting them, and I saw maybe the favorite interpretation of him I've seen. Someone had, um, in front of the bushes, in front of their windows in their house, they just put a giant cardboard cutout of the top of his head. (laughs) Coming out, buried in a well played. <laughs> I don't. Ugh. So appropriately sad. He's evil, but I love him <laughs> like a baby animal that, like a. Mm, I don't hmm, like a baby animal that you know will grow up to kill, <laughs> but you love him. <laughs> On that note, yeah. <laughs> our next weenie is counselor to the president Kellyanne Conway. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire. White House press office no, on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. Be- beautiful but, Kellyanne. <laughs> I, I don't know. She's quite evil. Quite evil. I feel like if she could, she would want to wear her homecoming princess crown always. <laughs> She was. I bet she subjects her husband and her children to that <laughs> yeah. regularly. This is mommy's queen time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were saying something, and now I feel like we're going to repeat this in a room full of our friends. But um, 
you cannot call Kellyanne a witch because that's very sexist. It goes against like five years of feminism. But like, <laughs> we do feel that there is a witch analogy to be made if we can make it among friends. We which, would not make it in public. Which again, we would never call her a witch, but... No, I'm not going to, we, but she like... Well, we would say, what I would say, she's totally one of those... The girls in the Salem witch trials who started all the rumors about that everyone else was a witch. Like she was present at you the invention of the witch. But she's not a witch. She's not a witch. A normal woman yeah. deserving of rights. Um, and our last weenie is Steve Bannon, the White House chief strategist. And if you remember, you know, the campaign was the most chaotic, you know, by the media's description, most chaotic, most disorganized, most unprofessional, had no earthly idea what they were doing. And then you saw them all crying and weeping that night on, on, on the 8th. When, when... Okay, Steve Bannon is hard to talk about, but I'd also like to call it that bitch in the red dress who was so happy to applaud for that. I know. But, okay, so Steve Bannon is hard, it's, he's hard to talk about because... He's so rarely in the public eye. He's really a behind-the-scenes man. Um, that said, he is by far the most most loathsome of them all. I feel like that's common, though, with the with the real evil. Like, not. I don't. I don't want to get too nerdy, but remember in Lord of the Rings? <laughs> no. Like, yes. Yeah. Say it. Well, I'm, sure I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> remember how Sauron was like sort of this vague figure? He was like, is he an eye? Is he a tower? I don't know. <laughs> but then you would have, yeah. you know, he would have all kinds of different faces of yeah. evil wizards, and so I feel like he's Sauron. <laughs> that's what I was trying to say yes that's so well said mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. now it's time for weenie cage match <laughs> sound cue um, so here's what we do we determine of these six contenders who's the most evil who's the most weenie-ish and why I'm gonna throw in Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. because he essentially lied under oath in a that just you, like, can't stand people who break the rules. I can't. I can't. I mean, he is the top lawyer in America. And he <laughs> lied under oath and then forgot everything about his job. Like, every, like everything. Like, You're how right. incompetent do you have to be? Or you just have to be really evil. So, I mean, that's, he definitely my, has, that's my vote. He definitely has a, co- a career and lifetime's worth of racism in his tiny bod. Also that. So, certainly that... <laughs> is evidence for him. I, I, I don't know if this makes me anti-feminist or pro-feminist, but Probably I'm nominating Kellyanne Conway because I would like a woman to win something. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good reason. I do a valid feel- argument. I do feel like the rest of these people, with the exception of Steve Bannon, who is my nomination, kind of like fell into it. Like Jared fell into his career of evil because he was like trying to bang Ivanka, not to be disgusting. Right. But, I mean, he certainly did not choose to be in the government. Um, who else is there? That's it. <laughs> oh, and Paul Ryan, who also, I, I do feel that he was like, I'm attractive. I can speak in full sentences. I'm going into Wisconsin politics. Are you hitting on Paul Ryan right now? No. <laughs> no. Sounded like it. Okay, so it does feel... <laughs> it, 
it does feel like it is a toss-up between Jeff Sessions and Kellyanne Conway. Does anyone in the audience, do we have feelings like how this comes down? Jeff Sessions, a racist who lied under oath. Kellyanne, a woman. <laughs> do we have opinions? No? That's true. All right, one for Jeff Sessions. <laughs> okay, Jeff Sessions. Okay, um... <laughs> we don't have to just call out names. If you have like a, if you have like a feeling, if you have like a passionate argument, I do encourage you to stand up and deliver it. But if you don't, I do feel that we can say it's a draw. Our first panelist is Amy Goodman. She's the host and executive producer of Democracy Now! She's also the recipient of this long-titled award, the 2014 IF Stone Medal for Journalistic Independence Lifetime Achievement Award. She's also the first journalist to receive the Right Livelihood Award, which is known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, which is honestly the only Nobel Prize I'd like to win. And our second guest is Erica Andiola. She's the former press secretary of Latino outreach for the Bernie Sanders campaign and the current political director for the campaign's successor organization, Our Revolution. Um, Erica is a dreamer, and she's the co-founder of the Arizona Dream Action Coalition. She has been fighting for undocumented immigrants and their families like her own and is now one of the most prominent immigration activists in the country. So, Thank you guys for being here. So I don't know about all of you, but personally, looking back in the past six months, I feel like I've lived a second lifetime. And I want everyone to think back to November and when the election happened, what were your, some of your immediate fears? What was your mindset? And contrast that to where things are now and how you're feeling now. So what were you preparing for and how is that shaken out? I was actually on a TV show the, doing commentary while the, the uh, scores were coming in or the states were coming in, and it was just un unbelievable. And I just got a text from my mom, and she's like, is, is, is this true? Is this real? <laughs> and I said, yes. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of us in our community, at least in the undocumented community, it was, it was a huge shock. It was uh, sort of the fear just kind of got into us, um, and it was very unexpected, I think. Me? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I was also, I, I was blindsided by it as much as anyone else. I think I was at a comedy show that night because they were like, what could be more fun than watching the results come in and doing silly bits in between? Um, so that was uh, sh horrible. But, um, <laughs> but it did feel, it was very strange because I, I wasn't in New York for 9-11, for but I heard people comparing it to like the next day, people just walking around, like the whole city just walking around in this weird stupor, like almost like we had all collectively been dumped by someone, uh, I guess democracy, but um, yeah. <laughs> but I, it, it does, it, I don't know, it feels like now, it, it feels like we've gone through all the stages of grief and it does, I don't know, now I'm sort of back at a place of like, okay, we, we just gotta get 
get mobilized again and sort of get, you know, we got to live our truths. Totally. So, Amy, you specifically have been critical of the way cable news covered last election, and it's kind of what my colleague Anna Merlin described as the human centipede between the media and Donald Trump that we're locked into. So, (laughs) that is so disgusting to say to you, I'm sorry that I did. Um, So, but how do we escape this content for rating system that I do feel like working in the media is kind of hard? You know, the media rolled out the red carpet for Donald Trump, and it wasn't only Fox. It was MSNBC. It was CNN. They talked about the ratings. It was CBS. And you had all of the heads of these networks talking about the ratings being good for the networks and bad for America. Um, And it is astounding to see what Bernie Sanders accomplished considering how his voice was silenced in the media. I'll never forget March 15th. It was considered... um, Uh, the third uh, Super Tuesday three or something, and it was five um, primaries. And that night, I think it was Cruz and Rubio still. Um, It was Kasich. It was Clinton. It was Trump. And it was Sanders. And they played appropriately all of their winning and losing speeches that night, except for Sanders. They didn't even speculate where he was. They didn't play anything from his speech, he was addressing the largest crowd that night in Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. like eight, 9,000 people. They didn't speculate where he was and they didn't play any part of a speech. So the next morning, not that we were planning to do this, but given this massive silence, you know, we played an excerpt of Bernie Sanders' speech. And the idea that even without that media coverage, he came so close to capturing the Democratic nomination. And it was not only rolling out the red carpet for Donald Trump, it was silencing the debate among progressives between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. This circling of the wagons around the White House in times of war and military action, this is the time we have to be most independent. It's absolutely critical that uh, as independent media, we are not, we are the fourth estate. We are not for the state. We have to cover power, not cover for power. And we have to cover the movements that create static and make history. Like today in Congress, the number of people who got arrested protesting the Republican health care bill who are being dragged away saying, kill the bill, don't kill us. People dragged out of their wheelchairs. And um, CNN was showing them in a split screen sometimes, but it's silent. And the know-nothing pundits, the pundits you see all the time who know so little about so much, they're the ones who are talking in the studio, and you're trying to figure out what is it exactly that they're protesting. Why don't they invite one of them, and they even have a reporter there? Just put the mic to them. Why is this so difficult for the corporate media to expand and bring us the voices of people that don't represent a fringe minority or even a silent majority, but the silenced majority silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take it back? Uh, so, Erica, I want to ask you the, this next question um, and then open it up. But 
So I think the election results, as we all mentioned, as you all mentioned, were very surprising. And I think one of the other things they revealed was that the Democratic Party's infrastructure was not as strong as people thought it was. I think now that we're six months into the this administration, people are still sort of waiting for a direction, for a leader, for something to emerge. And my question to you is why, you know, what's going on? Why is this taking so long? There's more momentum and more resistance now than an energy than we've ever seen. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the <clears throat> components that we're focusing a lot on, on our revolution, really following Bernie's steps is, you know, figuring out a way to transform the Democratic Party. Um, the local level, we're really inviting all these, you know, amazing Bernie supporters and, and people who felt that frustration of the primaries to take us, you know, take the next step and take leadership and making sure that the establishment of the Democratic Party understands that they have to be open to new leadership, that they have to be open to new blood, that is not just about, hey, Republicans are terrible, go vote. It, you know, it didn't really work for, uh, for, for Hillary as much as, you know, it worked for Bernie in terms of inspiring people when you talked about the issues. Um, and so, you know, for us, it's really getting people at the local level and leadership positions of the Democratic Party some don't want to do that, and it's totally fine. You know, they're still very involved, uh, pushing forward against against Donald Trump and 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 for progress. But also at the federal level or at the national level, um, you know, we did try to get Keith Ellison to win the chair uh, of the Democratic Party, which we weren't able to do it. Um, there was still a lot of pushback. We asked for the party to get away from corporate, uh, you know, influence, and they also didn't want to do it. And so. You know, we still have a lot of work to do, but I can tell you that, you know, getting people really, really empowered to take leadership at the local level, um, it's really going to help us push um, for the next elections and figuring out how we can really transform the party and get somebody who's going to be inspiring instead of just inflicting fear on voters because, you know, we need, we need something new. So this question's for Aparna. <laughs> Come on. So in The Village Voice, mm -hmm. you wrote the words, the problem isn't that Trump is unmockable, it's that he's too dangerous to simply mock. So if comedians aren't supposed to mock the politicians, what are you supposed to do? I think when I wrote that piece, I wasn't arguing that you we can't make jokes about everything that's going on, but I think it's like not enough. Like I feel like sometimes comedians think it's like, okay, we're taking down the people in power and we're speaking to that, but... I feel like right now the country is divided enough that it's like, okay, I think everyone knows who the bad people are. I get it. Uh, or, or at least they feel that way. And I think you have to go beyond just like making a silly punchline to, to, be, to actually institute and facilitate change. Because I also think satire can be tricky in that sometimes the, it, it caters to both the side that, you're trying to translate the irony of the idea too, but then sometimes it also then ends up actually catering to the side that it's making fun of too because they're like, yeah, we do feel that way. So <laughs> You're it, like too correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like too accurate, accurate or something. So Amy, we are seeing a lot of coverage of like both sides right now. Um, for example, for the sake of objectivity, for example, New York Times recently hired Brett Stevens, a known climate change denier. And like anchors like Megyn Kelly are interviewing Alex Jones for NBC now. So um, is that what objectivity means? Um, you know, what responsibility 
do journalists have to cover both sides? Well, it's as if if every time we talk about the Earth being round, we brought on someone from the Flat Earth Society for balance. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, there are accepted facts, and it's really important. I don't think the debate is around, as it is in this country, because you have the Koch brothers and others pouring millions into, um, well, you know, some call them think tanks, others call them stink tanks, but... Um, Pouring millions into, they don't, they know they can't quite get away with saying that human beings don't have any effect on climate change. So they just obfuscate. They say, we're waiting for the science to be in. But of course, to say 90% of the scientific establishment understands this is by far an underestimate. And it's absolutely critical. We bring out the diversity of opinion. Well, what is that just today? You know, I'm watching, I was not watching Fox today. I was watching MSNBC and CNN around the whole healthcare debate. It is so narrow what the networks are bringing us. They are bringing us the debate between the corporate Democrats and Republicans. Remember when the 13 older white men, um, most of them wealthy, the senators were behind closed doors, sequestered, writing up some kind of bill that was would... so moving. They were so passionate about what they were writing, <laughs> right? And the networks were just speculating. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? Why don't they use that time to actually talk about what the alternatives are? Like today, they're talking about what the Republicans have proposed. They're talking about Obamacare, which has been increasingly eviscerated. But the growing movement in this country, uh, the fact that a third of the population, what was the NPR Marist PBS poll today said something like 13%, so that means 87% of the population is against the Republican health care bill. Um, but Obamacare has been a problem from the beginning. So we had on um, today um, a guest who was talking about single payer, which is growing even though the networks aren't talking about it. And I'm not just talking Fox. It is absolutely unconscionable. This whole issue of Medicare for all. Medicare is extremely popular. It's why Donald Trump understood he couldn't win unless he said, I won't touch it. So why don't you just take Medicare and drop the age from 65 to the day you're born? And yet it is so compelling that the networks just do not talk about it. But on the ground, people are talking about it all over the country. Pew just did a poll, at least a third of the population is for it, and 56% want the government deeply involved. If they would just have discussions, open up the debate, we are not supposed to be a part of any of the parties. We are supposed to be apart, for them, apart from them and provide a forum for people to fully debate the issues. And that's where they're falling so far short now it is criminal because healthcare is a matter of life and death. Well, how do you get, sorry. <laughs> how do you get cable news to talk about this? Demand like you, it. You do, do you grow up, you become a pundit, you say, I'm on TV now, I'm gonna talk about single payer healthcare. I think it's all about <laughs> movements. I still think oh, yeah. um, this whole country is uh, determined by 
the movements that are changing America. And we see what happens as during the campaign, Black Lives Matter, um, the immigrant rights movement right there, the LGBTQ movement right there, and that forces the media to open up. They're mm -hmm. not going to do it on their own. One of the amazing things about the, the Dreamer movement, when he, you know, when it happened, but in 2009, we were pushing for the for the Dream Act, which would have given a path, a path to citizenship for people like myself who came as children. But one of the things that we saw was that the media was talking about the issue in a very, I mean, every time I would watch TV, they would talk about me as an illegal alien, right? I mean, who want, who here wants to be called an illegal alien? Like, for real, like. Walk around the street and say, hey, you're an illegal. I mean, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. And it doesn't show who I am, you know, how much I contribute to this country. And so a lot of the dreamers were feeling the same way. And we were watching the media and, you know, whether it was, you know, Fox or MSNBC or reading the New York Times, they keep calling us this and also really portraying the undocumented community as something we were not. And so it wasn't until we were like, okay, you know, people from D.C., You can step back a little. Now there's a movement growing, right? And we can speak for ourselves. We're undocumented and unafraid. We're going to tell the, you know, the world that these are our stories. If they want to deport us, then we'll pose a moral dilemma. And this movement was able to get, um, you know, eventually, years later, the New York Times to drop the I word. We were able to get MSNBC to actually invite dreamers to talk about our stories. Um, and again, it didn't, it, it didn't just happen from one day to the other. It really took for a movement to happen. And, and I agree with Amy that, you know, it's exactly what the Black Lives Matter movement did. And it's exactly right now what's happening that, you know, social media is a huge part of it too. You know, we're really seeing people put on uh, Facebook, post YouTube, uh, you know, channels or, or videos. And eventually, at some point, I think we're going to be able to put enough pressure for people to talk about single payer, um, the pundits and those folks that get paid to, to do that, right? Erica, how do you move forward when you're with that work um, with an administration that's constantly threatening to roll back and trying to roll back all of the rights that you've fought for so far? I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely challenging. <laughs> um, it's a reality that we're living that, you know, I think some of us have been resisting Trump, uh, people like Trump and Obama for, for years. Some of our communities have been resist in resistance for years. I've been in resistance since I was a child in this country. And so that's the part where I, you know, we're like, hello, America, we've been here. Like, let's continue to fight for the undocumented community, the, the you know, people of color. But also let's have a vision and let's figure out how we can also fight for something. Um, like single payer, like education for all and all these issues that we never talk about in the media. Yeah. So the media has evolved to try and deal with Trump. Activism has evolved. Has comedy evolved? Has your experience changed at all? Um, it's interesting because I feel like during the election, I think comedy was, at least political comedy, was in a little bit of a cocky place of like, oh, haha, Trump is running. That's so ludicrous. And then after he won, I think everyone had to like take a second and be like, 
wait, what? Like, <laughs> it, it was just like this thing that had clearly just been a punchline and like ridiculous had actually happened. So I think it's like almost like the the whole environment changed because it's like usually comedy, you like make fun of the absurd, but what if the absurd is now normal? It's like, then what do you make fun of? Is like normal now absurd? Uh, it, like you end up in a lot of like, just like philosophical holes. But um, yeah, I think, I think we're now at a place where I think, you know, we're past the initial shock and it is like, what, what do people want to do with, with that time in terms of like the daily show and like, John Oliver and Samantha B. And I think I feel like they've been doing a good job of sort of going in depth on things. And I think um, like Amy was saying, it's like people's stories are really what resonate with people um, rather than like these vague issues. It's like if you take someone's actual individual experience, it's a lot easier to connect to it, even if you might not feel the same way. Have you encountered when you've been, when you do stand up or mm -hmm. whatever, uh, when you do shows and stuff? <laughs> that sounded so That's how so my mom rude. talks about it. <laughs> stand up for like a show. Um, have you encountered, I mean, especially traveling across mm -hmm. the country, are there audiences that are more hostile to you or are people more willing to listen? I mean, I tend to do the like liberal bubble belt. Like I... <laughs> You know, I play in places that it's like people are not going to be like, what's she doing there? But um, uh, uh, but in that sense, like I, I just did a show with um, Lady Parts Justice, which is a great uh, reproductive rights organization uh, started by Liz Winstead. And she is doing like this tour right now through like, you know, like places that might not be as, as open to abortion rights and stuff. And I did a show with them in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was like, amazing how many people came out to support and they said all their shows have been like packed so I think it is like even in places where you might not think certain ideas will fly like there are people who are like craving their voices to be represented and like we toured an abortion clinic in the morning and it was just like it's easy to be like you know in New York or LA and be like yeah women women's rights reproductive rights, but then there are like people in actual places where it's sort of like a desert of actual rights and they're like doing the work every day and like their lives are like being threatened daily. And they're, and, and I think that makes you realize that it's like, okay, there's like actual stakes beyond like a retweet. <laughs> yeah. A good lesson for everyone. <laughs> we have a question. Hey ladies, thank you so much for tonight. This has been awesome. Um, but my question is, do you think that if Bernie Sanders uh, was a cisgendered woman and the entire record was the same, local mayor came up as an independent, ran as an independent for 30 years, every vote, every stance, if Bernie had been a woman, would Bernie have been able to get where he got? Sounds like it's for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, some people were like, oh, Bernie, you can get behind him because he's like, a, you know, your eccentric uncle who just like comes in and shakes things up. Uh, so that, so in the most literal sense, I'm like, what about it if it was a fun aunt? Um, yeah. And like, maybe Elizabeth Warren is the fun aunt we need. I don't know. I don't know. I'm speculating. Mm -hmm. I really believe that, yes, perhaps we need some folks uh, in power that are never represented or they're hardly ever represented or, you know, um, not represented at all. But at the same time, I think we need to figure out that we have or 
make sure that we have the right people in power. That is not just about gender. And I can tell you, you know, I, I really wish and I really hope that we can have a woman uh, be president sooner than later. Um, but I didn't support Hillary, even if she was a woman, because I didn't believe in her policies. We need to empower more lefty women of color and women, you know, women overall, LGBT folks and people who are not that, you know, usually represented. We need to empower them to run. And I can tell you that there's a lot less of them running than I, I would want to. Most of the people who actually apply for an endorsement for a revolution are white men, um, like 70 percent. And so that tells you a lot. It doesn't mean that maybe women don't want to run for office. It might mean that we might need a little push. Um, and so I encourage you all to, you know, really push those folks that you think have that leadership skills that are not represented, um, but also make sure that, you know, they're the right people to be in leadership and to have the values that, that we have. I think women should apply for more things in general, just to piggyback off of that. Um, Hi, this question is specifically for Amy, and I'm just wondering as a media consumer what your suggestion is with, regarding relating to cable news going forward, because as of now, my stance personally has just been to completely tune out and maybe hope that a lot of other people are doing the same and that then they will figure out that they are not providing the type of content that people want, but I don't know if that's necessarily what you would suggest as, as a way to interact going forward. I think you should support independent media. I mean, and you should be the media. It's really critical that um, we build our own media, but also challenge the corporate media. I mean, like the networks, for example, you know, they're using public property. It's the national airwaves, and they are so precious and must be protected. And if they don't bring out that full diversity of opinions, they should have their licenses revoked. Okay, I think we've got time for one more. I'm an educator, and I recently had a conversation with my principal about how some parents were saying I was a little expressing opinions that were not necessarily appropriate for all sixth graders. And, <laughs> um, which might be true, but I'm very curious, and I apologize for the simplicity of this question, how to explain in this kind of post-truth society the difference between information and truth and opinion. It's something I'm really struggling with and I want to know your thoughts. You know, I think it's extremely important that reporters be fair and accurate, um, but everyone has an opinion and it is important to, you know, talk about people's views versus what are, you know, absolute facts like climate change, uh, what are scientific proven facts. Um, and also talk about respecting people's opinions and, um, and how important it is we allow people to speak for themselves and give them time to speak. Even the eight or nine second soundbite is political because what can you say in that amount of time? You can really just repeat the conventional wisdom. And if you have anything else to say, they say you're not ready for prime time, but you need to explain like if you say the president is guilty of war crimes, you have to explain the Nuremberg Conventions or you sound a little bit crazy. If you said Saddam Hussein is like Hitler, everyone understands what you mean, that's all you need to say. But you wanna say something different, you need the time. And we have to demand that the media open up and people who are not as experienced in the corporate media, who are much more likely to tell the truth, need the time to say it. 
So I say respect people's opinions. Those opinions are very legitimate and also understand what facts are and what is not debatable and what actually there is proof for. But policy is, you know, debating what to do about things, and that's people's opinions. So every week uh, on the last segment of our show, we do a segment called How to Handle the Dicks, which is where we talk about what we're doing on a practical day-to-day basis to cope with our stressful political situation, which I don't want to speak for anybody else, but it's stressful for us. And we wanted to invite our panelists to do this with us just for a couple minutes at the end of our show. Um... (laughs) Me, okay, (laughs) I'll start it off. Okay, so what I'm doing is that I cocked every hole in my apartment so bugs aren't crawling in it anymore. And I do feel very proud. I feel like that was an an effort that I took at fortifying my home in a maternal way. How how many, how many holes? Uh, Truly an uncountable number of holes. Uh, holes, my, my walls don't meet my floor. So everywhere where there's a floor and a wall, there's a hole. Great. So that's mine. You're living in a cock fortress. Yeah, I am living in a fortress of cock. <laughs> For sure. Um, one of the things that I have done, I don't know that this is related to Trump, I know, you say this every week. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be related to anything. But I started taking um, Krav Maga yeah. martial arts. <laughs> and it's really fun. And it's great to like punch and kick the air. But eventually maybe a Nazi also. <laughs> yes. uh, I generally have just been um, really diving deep into... Um, animal videos. <laughs> Great. Um, especially dog ones. I found this Twitter handle called We Rate Dogs, which sounds... <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh which sounds my like it could be, you know, objectifying to the community, but it's, <laughs> it's actually very dog positive. <laughs> and I also... Re- I found this... Twitter yesterday called Birds Rights Activist. I love Birds <laughs> Rights Activist. And just like explain it's a, what it's it a, is. It's like a, acti- a bird who is an activist for its community. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a one issue creature. Great is fun. he friends with Bertie Sanders by any chance? Yeah. Oh, I, yes. I got to check out Bertie Sanders. <laughs> it's the same bird. Eternal jokes, sorry. <laughs> I have a birthday obsession. And so at Democracy Now!, there's like a birthday explosion. 
Um, first of all, I really love the people I work with, so just hanging out with them at Democracy Now! and they are proliferating. And so it's celebrating all the birthdays of everyone <laughs> born um, and who are being born right now and also taking care of my friend's dogs whenever I can. And you might Lovely. occasionally, if you look super carefully at Democracy Now!, I mean, the floor is black, but if you look really carefully, you might see Kiki there, a very curly Labradoodle, who sometimes <laughs> sits under my desk when I'm taking care of her. Oh. <laughs> so great. Uh, well, I, I live in D.C. Everything I do is like always comes back to politics and it sucks. But I try to, <laughs> I mean, your friends, you go and you get drunk and then you start talking about Trump, you know, or whatever. But I mean, I, I, I love going to the gym, um, which again, same thing. You go to the gym and every television is like playing CNN and MSNBC. So I just try to like, just look, you know. Into nothing. Into nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trying to get some tips on, you know, people like working out, that creepy one looking at everyone yeah. working out because I don't want to watch TV. That's, that's all I do. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you guys so much for participating in this. Thank you so much to our panelists, Aparna Nantrola, Amy Goodman, and Erica Andiola. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. It was recorded by Noriko Okabe and Jesus Figueroa. Thank you to Victor Jeffries, Emma Carmichael, Julianne Escobedo Shepard, Phoebe Bradford, Aclean Caraballo, Jaquita Pascal, Stephanie Hallett, Veronica D'Souza, Brianna Barzola, Alex Dickinson, Jennifer Perry, David Ford, Adrian Saravia, Omar Chavez, and The Bell House. And thank you to everyone who attended. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. <laughs>